the thing that has been the most profound way to work with a human being has been being myself, has been showing up and actually looking them in their eye, not judging them for what had happened and just creating a space for them to be themselves by me being myself and me actually showing that I care. Hi friends, it's Steve and welcome to episode 59 of the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you for being a part of our worldwide family of Assyrian Podcast listeners. We all have challenging and difficult circumstances to deal with. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, a broken relationship, a health concern, or a job situation that isn't going the way we want. Whatever it is, we have to learn how to deal with it and overcome it. Well, this episode of the Assyrian Podcast is unlike any other you've heard before. I had the pleasure of sitting down with my longtime friend, Edith Chuchaga, who has recently launched her own coaching business. After many years of providing full-time professional therapeutic services, she decided to do her own thing. Edith is as raw and as real as you'll find in the Assyrian community. Have you ever met an expert in trauma? And not just someone who studied trauma or talks about trauma, but someone who has experienced deep pain and has come out on the other side. That's what you're about to hear on today's episode. Edith isn't full of toxic positivity or oversimplified anecdotes. She's all about deep, lasting, transformative change that comes from her education and overcoming the real-life trauma in her own life. As you listen to this podcast, remember, this is an Assyrian like you and like me who has converted their pain into healing, and she's interested in doing that for other Assyrians as well. Check the show notes for her contact information. You can add her on social media, email her, and see her website. A disclaimer, in this episode, we're going to talk about some very sensitive topics, and we want you to be prepared. One listener said, make sure they're ready for a good old cry. So strap on your seatbelt, grab a Kleenex, because you are in for a ride. A huge shout out to our sponsor, Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and as a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847 982 9516. And now, sit back and enjoy hearing from Eddie. I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Let's talk throw about it. your name, Edit. Because <laughs> we didn't even mention that. How did you get the name Edit? First of all, it's not Edit. It's Edit. That's so Americanized. It's Edit, right? It's Edit. Yes. My mom has different stories of how it came to be, but depends on who you ask in our family. It was a really a rhythm to our whole, like my sibling set name. Mm-hmm. So Yvette Odette Edith, it just has a little ring to it. And one of my aunts just came to the hospital and was like, you should name her Edith and it all just rhymes. So I like to tell the story that I'm named after Edith Piaf. <laughs> 
Who's Edith Piaf? Steve, come on. I don't know who Edith Piaf is. She's a French singer who came from hardship, who then made it And I'm supposed to big. know who that is. Yeah. There was a whole movie about it. La Vian uh, Rose. She Never sang, heard of it. What? It's mm-hmm. like in every... All right, I'll get you to listen to it okay. after this podcast. I'm sure many of the listeners are like Googling it right now. They've all pulled over and they're, we, they have to find out who this person is. As they should. So I've known you pretty much my whole life. We grew up together in Turlock and then we reconnected in the Bay Area. And I've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. One of the things I know about you is that I would classify you as an expert in trauma. And for me, learning about that about you has to do with Whenever I've gone and read any of your material, I've looked at your posts on your social media, it isn't that you just talk about trauma. Some of the ways of healing, some of the tools that you give people for how to deal with trauma, they tell me you've been through trauma Mm -hmm. and you've overcome trauma and you've processed that. And so what I wanted to do for the Assyrian Podcast listeners is talk about the trauma you've been through. And then talk about how you help people who have been through trauma. Yeah, big loaded question there. Let's just start off yeah. kind of with some Let's lobs dive, and some easy dive deep. ones. Yeah. Hey, I can dive in the deep end <laughs> right. with no floaters on and I'm good. So for me, I mean, trauma started before I was even born, right? Like my parents grew up in Iran, war-torn country. I hear stories about how they were in the basement. There was bombas, like (laughs) bombara, whatever, you know. And I'm like crying nestled into my mom's neck. So even as a baby, actually trauma is stored at a visceral level in our cells, even at a young age. And so I would even classify that as my first exposure to trauma. And then my family having to, as many of our Assyrian families had to leave a country, leave everything behind. And my parents never saw their own family and sacrificed everything for me and my sisters to come to America, assimilate and learn a new language and all of that. There, There is some trauma there. Trauma is anything that changes the, the brain to be on fight or flight. And so to come to a country and uproot and have no job and figure out how you're going to feed three kids, like that's pretty traumatizing. Um, so for me growing up, I, I would definitely say as a child, I was really sheltered from a lot of that. Now that I reflect back, I know it wasn't easy for my parents. And then fast forward to about middle school, high school, I began to see mental health illness like really show up in my family, like people suffering from depression, alcoholism. Um, anxiety. Now that I know what it is, I can call it for what it is. And I really just began to get curious about human behavior and why we do the things we do and why we suffer and why people, some people just have a harder time in life. And I, in eighth grade, went to visit my sister in Chicago and one of her friends worked in like an inpatient psych ward. Which sister is this? My oldest sister, Yvette. Okay. And why was she in Chicago? She lived there for like a couple of years. Her husband's from there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, eighth grade, I flew by myself. I had to wow. be like chaperone. It was so cool. You're lucky. That's very cool experience. I was. I yeah. was. I was very blessed. And I literally wanted to spend my summers in this inpatient psych ward <laughs> with my sister's friend who worked there. And I was fascinated about like just how the human mind worked and how people were just like, 
really struggling. I don't know why I was drawn to human suffering at such a young age. And fast forward again, I got into college, went to, you know, got my BA in psychology naturally. I was, again, just wanted to learn more about human behavior. And then I worked with populations in different settings from teenagers who were gang affiliated, came from broken homes to then moving on to grad school and got my master's in social work at USC and got exposed to, you know, a lot there in my internships. I worked with veterans who were coming back from war, some of them who had served in Vietnam, some who were coming back from Iraq. And By, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but for those of you, uh, USC, University of Woo! Southern California, Go that Trojans. is one of the uh, prestigious call universities in the United States, right? It's one of, yeah, it's a really prestigious private school that I'm really proud to say I went to. And in high school, USC was always a school I wanted to get into. And no one in my family went to college, not, you know, because of other circumstances. And I trailblazed away to manifest. Yeah, small town Turlock girl goes to USC. I mean, that's a good story in and of itself. Yeah. Now my nephews are in college right after high school. So you just break the cycle at some Mm -hmm. point. Anyways, that's a whole nother podcast episode. Mm -hmm. But no, I think it's it's uh, inspiring to know that you were able to pick yourself up, move, you know, with that background and then go get your master's from USC. I mean, that that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I left at 22 with my dog, Romeo, and waved to my family from Turlock in the rearview mirror and drove straight to L.A. And fortunately, I have family there, so it didn't feel too much of like a crazy shock to uproot. But yeah, working at my internships there, I got exposed to uh, like vicarious trauma. So other people's pain and other people's suffering. I was just always planting myself in communities and populations who had seen the worst. Like I'd worked with women who were reintegrating back from jail into their community who had suffered so much abuse from sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse from their families, from their husbands, and we're trying to figure out how to live again and how to be in society again after having been in jail for example killing their husband because of self-defense I mean it was just and I ran groups with these women I created a um, a writing group for them to just write it was called the right voice with w-r-i-t get it the right voice oh yeah yeah so creative (laughs) nobody take that it's copyrighted I'm just kidding it's not Hmm. But yeah, we cry, created a, I created a group there and like they got to just be real humans connecting with other humans about their feelings and their suffering and their pain. And there was something that just got ignited in that room where there was hope instilled and there was shared experiences. And I was just constantly craving that sort of uh, connection with, with people. And I just continued on that path. I worked there and then I fast forward moved up to the Bay Area and have been at a nonprofit agency for the last eight and a half years working with youth in foster care and adoptions and um, Seneca family of agencies like really well known and on the west coast huge large nonprofit if anyone wants to become a foster parent let me know I oversee that program um, for the last four years with amazing colleagues. And again, I got to see a lot of families and kids coming from a lot of pain and suffering. And I say all that for like the longest time. So I've been in mental health for 12 years. 
And this whole time I'm thinking I'm here to help people, connecting back to my own fascination with human behavior. And it wasn't until actually I experienced my own trauma, like actual adult life trauma, where I felt depression and I felt anxiety. And then I realized I got into this field to ultimately help myself. Like I ended up being my own client. Like God planted me in a very early age in these communities and these peoples and the stories with them to ultimately like come back and really save myself and that's why I'm here today able to talk about it and so passionate and on fire about changing the story about trauma and it can be one of triumph and be one of finding the purpose in your pain that your pain and your suffering doesn't just have to stay there. It can be moved. It could be changed. It can be transformative. And no one on this earth I've come to know <laughs> has been free from a, a suffering experience. So the people you've met and the experiences you've had, tell us, give us specific examples of the kind of trauma you've seen. Like oh, you mentioned God. women who had murdered their own husband or, or killed their own husband in self-defense and then had to spend time in jail. I mean, those are the sort of experiences that leave you mystified is a, is a light word to use. You're not guilty, but you are guilty where there's two sides to the story and there is no real closure or resolution. It's just sort of a senseless mm -hmm. situation. So is that the kind of thing that you've dealt with? I mean, that's just a little piece of well, so much. Tell us I mean, more th because... uh, there's stories from people who have experienced being raped by their own father, who got impregnated, who then had to have an abortion at 13. And so you're, you've actually. I have met and dealt and like done therapy with people that have had that amount of trauma in their life, repeated trauma. I have had. Kids who have, by five years old, were molested and raped by their grandfather. Or it's usually always somebody in that circle that knows the kid, that has access to them. I mean, those are the most horrific kinds of abuse, I think, for a little kid to have their entire childhood robbed of them. And, and your training and background has helped you to systematically, intellectually, professionally approach how to help people get through those con conflicts? Yes. Pain, yes. Trauma. Yes. But I would say more than that. Yes, I went to school. Yes, I have a degree. Yes, I'm licensed. Yes, I can diagnose people. But the thing that has been the most profound way to work with a human being has been being myself, has been showing up and actually looking them in their eye, not judging them for what had happened, and just creating a space for them to be themselves by me being myself and me actually showing that I care. And someone had said this a long time early in my career and it's always stayed with me. They said, interventions don't change people. People change people. We ultimately are inspiring one another to heal, to be better, to let go of shame and guilt and to move forward and to be inspired and to live and to let go and to find God or whatever it is, like we are ultimately the intervention. And there's so much we can go with that based on our own culture. I want to dig deep with you because I know you're the kind of person I can. Yeah. And I, I want to ask, like, you don't need to share specific examples, but whatever you feel comfortable with, tell us about 
you said you you said that being with all these patients over a number of years helped you then realize like how much trauma you had been dealing with and how much pain that you were going to get healing from. Tell us both if, what you've experienced pain and shame and trauma from and then how you've processed and where you are now with a lot of that kind of stuff. Because I think that's something we can all relate to. Yeah. So for me, I had really... for Death has showed up a lot in my family. Um, people have... My earliest memory of someone passing away who was close to me was my cousin Paul in eighth grade who was shot and killed at like 10 years old on the freeway in the backseat of his mom's car. Profoundly changed. Had that. nothing to do with it? Literally was... Had nothing. It was like at the time in L.A. in the 90s where there was tons of drive-by shootings that were happening. And... So you knew Paul? You were close to Paul? That's my second... Yeah, it was my my first cousin's son and we would grow up together she one day would take us shopping he was like my little brother like we just were swimming in the pool all the all the summers like when I lived in LA he lived in Valencia yeah we grew up together then in eighth grade I I heard that you know my yeah he passed and I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral because I was young and my parents didn't want to expose me to to that and I remember being really mad and upset that I couldn't go and pay my respects, like at that young age, just being sheltered, you know, and I understand to a degree why, you know, our parents shelter us from things, but I wish I had gone, but I remember that stayed with me. So that happened in eighth grade. That was my first taste of real death. And I I really, that impacted me a lot. That was someone who was my age and I had known and all of a sudden something that was horrendous out of anyone's control happen. Were you able to process? I mean, for what? Oh, I was like 12 for what I could. Did yeah. your parents have you see a counselor or no, anything like that? No, no, no. It was just like, it happened and... We're going to pray about this? Pray, yeah. Uh, you know, and it wasn't until I was an adult and moved to LA that I went to his gravesite for the first time and completely broke down and um, got to visit his site and, you know, and um, yeah. So that that was my early experience. And then... In 2006, the night before Christmas Eve, basically, my I remember we got the phone call that my grandma passed away. And this was my only grandparent I actually knew. I didn't have a relationship with any. That was uh, ninth grade? No, no, no. In 2006. Oh, okay. Christmas Eve. I was 22. So my grandma passes away. And Christmas Day, me and my mom drive down to L.A. And, you know, she's crying. And um, this is my first. Like, we go and actually see my grandma's body and like ugh, it was just just like there was something peaceful and really just it was like peaceful and sad all at the same time it was and I did the eulogy I uh, wrote the eulogy for the priest and then I gave a speech and that was the first of five eulogies I've given so far in my life so I did my grandma's in 2006 two years later in 2008 my aunt who's in her 40s on the first day I start orientation at USC, I get the call and I remember I walked out and I remember each of these phone calls. I'm at orientation, I get a phone call and I hear my mom hysterically crying saying my aunt at 42 years old is diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And I go sit on the grass and I just hysterically cry and I, you know, she lived in Glendale and I'm at USC downtown LA so I jet over there as soon as my orientation's done and she got diagnosed in August. She passed away that October. So we had her in hospice. 
at the house and I actually so two months basically basically two and a half months and I'm at that point living with my other aunt starting my first semester at USC my mom moves in for about a month to really like be there with my aunt in her last moments there was she refused chemo she just was like I'm done like no I'm not she could could she have fought it or there... she, I mean who knows I'm not yeah. even gonna circle back to that she that was her decision and and that was that. Mm-hmm. And we just made it comfortable. And this was our first time our family really experienced cancer straight on. And I remember her crying in my arms and saying, like, you know, I'm dying. Like, why are people like, what do what, what do people want from me? They're just calling me like, what do they want me to say? I'm dying. And she just cries and I'm holding her. And and it was heavy. It was heavy, heavy. I don't know if I can cuss on this or not. Yeah, go ahead. I'll refrain in case there's any young, you know, let me be a role. Yeah, Yeah. let me be a role model, an example. So my aunt is like in her bedroom passing away in front of us. And she actually, I was in the room alone with her because everyone's like in and out and like saying their farewells. And I just was stroking her hand. And I, I actually told her she could let go and just move on to the next world. Like she's such a believer huge like faith in God and she I knew she saw the other side and I was like you can let go like you can just release and she I she literally I was like whoa she literally took her last breath and like to see someone just take their last breath on earth is profoundly I I just don't even have the words I I don't have the words I just at that point jumped up and like screamed to get my mom and everybody in the room, I'm like, um, she passed. And, like, I just even feel it in my body now. Like, I'm, you know, it's like this trauma is so visceral. Like, as soon as you talk about it, your body, like, goes it back to that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was shaking. I remember I walked. And this was the night before, like, this big final that I had. And I just went around the block crying hysterically. You know, she was my godmother. She had given me the keys to her apartment. And, like, she was the sweetest, sweetest soul. And within, like, three months to process, she was dancing at our, you know, her niece's, my cousin's wedding just a few months before that. So to see that happen so quickly was insane. And I ended that semester with a 4.0. Like, I just channeled all my stress. And try- I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. And I give myself props. <laughs> and... You know, and I, I did her eulogy. I made a little, like, video and spoke at her funeral. So something God has just, I there was something in our family he implanted in me to be able to stand up at these funerals and, like, speak of our I, There's something connected to their spirit that I just, I feel I'm able to hold that pain and do justice to their story, their life story, make sure it's, like, told in the way that they would find with dignity and pride. So that's 2008. Two years later, so 2010, my sister, Odette, at 33, is diagnosed with breast cancer. And we find out again around, it's like always been around the fall. So the fall, whenever it creeps back up, there's this like bittersweet. It's at a time where you're triggered. Yeah. So if people ever really, if they start associate, if they start really remembering themes in their life and attach a timeline to it and notice 
if there's times of the year they kind of feel down all of a sudden because there's this why. and they don't know what that's why. So I know every time around the fall I get this bittersweet smell again of like death and uh, sadness, but I know how to move through it now. Where I now I have gratitude over it, where I have to consciously remind myself of that too. It this was just your like, younger sister. This is my middle sister. Oh, middle so sister. I'm the youngest. Yeah. So this is our my our middle sister. And she has a son, 15, married. Odette had Odette a son. Has a, has a son. Ha, uh, that's so hard. Yeah, has, a, has a son. Uh, Benjamin, you know, he's 15 at the time. And um, so for three years, our family really, like, but like we, I, I, that time is really a blur for me. All I remember is, like, I'm working and, like, weekends I'm home at, like, in Modesto and with her and with our family like we just all hands on deck like I was just researching as much as I could to understand like god cancer showed up in our family again like what do we do with what is what is can like I went to Kaiser to like learn about cancer which was no help at all um not to them but I think just cancer is just there's a lot in the medical field that they it's like anybody can have it but here's maybe somebody who can have it but then we're not really sure if that's what's connected to it so it's just really hard to try to understand it and I, that's what I was trying to do I was trying to understand it and try to treat it you tried to intellectualize it 100 percent. try yes. to what's the math here yes how do I solve this right yep and that didn't work no not at all and that was the hardest thing and we relied on faith like everything like faith church holy water I mean right everything everything under the sun and ultimately, what ended up happening, her cancer came back. I, we know for a year and a half, she was cancer-free, quote-unquote, celebrated and whatnot. And then uh, 2000, end of to- 2013, 2014, it came back, and it came back aggressively. And at that point, I mean, it, it was really bad. It was like everywhere. One know? of the things I've heard a lot throughout the years is someone will get sick, yeah. People will pray. Yeah. Everyone prays. Mm-hmm. And God's supposedly going to protect this person. Fix it. Yep. Fix it. And maybe God even does, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a sense in which, oh, good, you know, they're healed or whatnot. Then it comes back. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And then the worst happens. The, the worst happens. That, yep. That you prayed not to happen. And then all of a sudden, not only from a trauma perspective, are you dealing with the loss and the grief? But now there's this trust relationship. Oh, broken. That you're just like, wait, God exists, does something to help in these situations? Yeah. I, yes, I went. Which is another piece to the trauma. It was another piece to, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I had my faith for, yeah. I mean, I've been in and out of my faith. I think with my aunt passing, my mom, her faith has never shook. She's uh always had an unshakable faith. This woman has been through, and it's her sister. It's her mom. It's her daughter. Um, and I'm not done with our losses, like, <laughs> so there's more. And sh- to see her unshakable has been a, a beautiful uh, testimony to me. And, and yet you would argue, I think, uh, just to be clear here, because it's okay that that trauma would lead someone to say, you know what, I'm done with oh, it. Oh, God, yeah. I actually think it's healthy. I think I needed to be mad at God. Because it actually ultimately led me, he never stopped loving me. Like I, I think that's what is beautiful about our relationship with him is that we can 
steer off and we can be mad. And when we get to a point where, and hopefully if we get to that point, we can return back to him. And ultimately that's what happened to me. But yeah, I was absolutely angry. And for my sister, I mean, I was already upset at my aunt passing away. Yeah, that's a know? whole different ballgame, 33 and years old. my sister, well, we remember she battled for three years, so she was 36. So she is the age I am right in. Mm-hmm. I will be in September where I'd be no longer here on this earth. I can't even imagine what that was like for her. So on 4th of July, I mean, it got to a point, long story short, she had to go to hospice, and um, it was me and her her husband having to make arrangements and plans, and, like, if she goes into it, do we recess? Like, making plans at that, when you're in that state, whether to resuscitate or not, like, you know, because she can't make decisions at that point, that shit is I'm here that that's organic. There you go. That is, no, we you know we had actually hard. A, we had a trauma nurse on the show named Nardine who lives in Phoenix, Arizona area, and she talked about how especially with our grandparents, we ought to figure out from them well ahead of time. You know, when do we pull the plug? Do you want us to? What do you want us to do? Mm-hmm. Get all that squared away because if you're gonna wait, it's dying with dignity. Yeah. So. Now I know that. Back back then. So you were in the throes of they're asking you the for floral yeah, arrangements I mean, and how many chairs you how want. How much at the in hall. our culture do we talk about death and dying and like it being like a peaceful conversation? It's not. It's morbid. It's depressing. It's people. You must be cursed. Uh, yeah, or like at the funeral, like Ainam Khila. It's just horrible things. I also heard. You know, just but. For for that time, yeah, it was it was really challenging and hard. One of the hardest things I've ever to this date experienced. And I laid by her bedside for three and a half days straight till her last breath. At two something a.m. in the morning on July fourth, I rushed by her bedside. As soon as I heard the nurse say she's taking her last few breaths, I like grabbed her hand and I wished her well into the next life. And and that was that was it. I, I and I had before that facilitated conversations with each family member coming into the room to talk to her and say their goodbyes. She was, in a she couldn't re, she wasn't she was on so much morphine, so she wasn't conscious, but she could hear us. And when her son came to talk to her, she, you could just see tears on the corner of her eyes coming out. And, but there was times she would come in and out. There's something about the people who are passing on to the other world. They start picking. Mm-hmm. because they have one foot in, in the other door mm. or in the other realm and one foot here and they're starting to like realize are they here are they not here and there was it was like a it was a surreal experience to have but I learned a lot about death and dying at that time and ultimately the la- the years following that I fell into a huge depression like gained weight ate emo- you know like emotionally eating robotic like all I remember was like going to work and like making it through the day to come home to like watch Orange is the New Black or like what is like my next Netflix binge and so your master's degree wasn't necessarily giving you the tools or you're like no no this was a good way I needed to binge I needed this is yeah I needed to go through that I'm glad I, I gave myself those I mean I I'm not one to go back in my life and regret anything. I think things play out the way they're supposed to play out, and I trust the process, and I trust the journey God leads me in. And I actually think pain is is a growth opportunity. Like, it's okay for us to feel our feelings. And I allow myself and give myself permission. I didn't 
I mean, were there times I could have, you know, not gone so dark, but I think now I know that that was, there was purpose in that because I had to go to the darkest place that my clients had gone to that I know people go to now. Like, did I have thoughts of suicide? A hundred percent. Yeah, it was so, my, my whole family changed after that. What I knew of our family every Christmas together, her birthday's on Christmas, 4th of July, I, I, would, I would hate hearing fireworks. I, I kind of still do. But now I see it as like she's, you know, shining her light in the sky. But to go to that deep place where I'm like, okay, uh, do I turn to drugs? Do I turn to alcohol? Do I just kill myself? Like the only thing that kept me really sane was my network, like my family, my friends being there, loving me through. Like I have my best friends who... Well, what if you don't have that though? If you don't have that, it's really hard. I build that community, go to a support group. You need people. You cannot isolate. You cannot isolate with that amount of pain. You will turn to... What if you show up to those communities and you're like, I can't connect with any of these people? Then find the... Find us. There is always a community out there. There is always a community ready to love you, whether it's at your church. Force yourself to go. What if you're like not a believer? I believe people will... When you get that desperate and you're not going to end your life, the thing is there is help out there. When someone is in such a dark place and they have no network and they don't, the other thing that's important is I was going to say was not only my network, but my faith. Even though I was mad at God, there was something deep down that I just couldn't go fully and end my life. There was more that I knew was going to be on the other side. I just needed to go through these growing like suffering pains and I turned to what I knew could sometimes it was just moment to moment what is this moment what can I do in this moment to get me to the next moment and sometimes it was just to breathe it was just to cry it was just to lay in bed it was to talk to a friend it was to pray but like to be mad at God and to just there was different things that I just did I honestly also really blank at those years it was a blur it was a horrible time Ultimately, I got to a point where my depression got so bad I had to just tell my husband because I I was the heaviest I'd ever been. I was not fulfilled in life. I was just robotic at work, and I knew there was more to me than that. And so, and I'm diagnosing people. I'm diagnosing people with like depression, anxiety, and I'm like, I literally took out my. It's called the DSM, you know, Gnostic Statistical Manual. But, like, I took that out and I showed the (laughs) depression to her. Yeah, I was like, Abraham, look, like, I am meeting five of the nine criteria. Like, I am clinically depressed. And that that was last year, actually, June 14th, 2018. And I decided that night he helped me. Like, what am I doing next to really, like, kind of act, like, get myself out of that? And we made some next steps and I, I'm really big into alternative healing. So I went and had like a cupping session on my back and those are, the, I always oh, see those I love pictures. It. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So this, this, I went to God works in mysterious ways, how that worked out, but it was like divine timing. And I just dedicated from that point For on. For people who don't know what cupping is, can you give a brief description? I mean, they did it in Edon. Like <laughs> my mom tells me that, that that's what but they Assyrians used to do. But are all over the world. That's true. So it's like, it's a ancient Eastern medicine. Well, not medicine, but like they take actual cups and Mm -hmm. they're special cups, but they light a flame and a little bit of alcohol and they put it, really you could put it anywhere on your body, but I put it on my back and it releases tension. And when they cup 
It's like literally the cup goes and it sucks up your skin to move your blood around. So yeah. it doesn't stay stagnant and still and you get more oxygen and it releases tension. And then after, you know, some time they take the, the cups off and it's it feels so much lighter. It works for me. You got those big bruises. It's just, it's just some discoloration on your skin. It doesn't hurt. It really doesn't. <sighs> I highly recommend it. And I dedicated to 12 weeks of transforming my life at that point, which meant I woke up at 5 a.m. I meditated every morning, uh, including prayer, went to the gym, did the steam room, thought about what I wanted in life, really starting to cultivate gratitude and having a different relationship with my pain and noticing that and having different narrative scripts, everything that I would tell clients to do and people to do. And I was doing on myself to get myself back into feeling alive again. And 12 uh, weeks was what I committed to. Five weeks into that, I get a phone call on my way to my best friend's baby shower that I'm hosting that my dad passed away. And that was totally unexpected. A hundred percent. I mean, my family for sure, you, your family will never be the same after an immediate family member passes from that. Like you just, it, it changes, changes the identity. It changes everything. Everyone grieves in their own way. There's a peace that will always remain void. I don't care what anyone says. Like if you've experienced an immediate loss in your family, like you understand what I'm talking about. That's what happened to my family. My parent you know especially Syrian parents having to bury their own child like we are their life until their last breath and so I don't know how much it suffered my dad to have to bury his own daughter like I know to some degree that was part of what you know led to him passing and wanting to move on into the next world with her but I got that phone call and it was again I just remember that day vividly it was awful I just you know don't even have the words, but it's still fresh, right? It's still fresh. Yeah, it's less than a, yeah, year, less than a so. year. My dad passed away, so I'm there for my family. I'm. We, this is the first time I'm actually really involved in the funeral arrangements. I had done also my sister's eulogy, spoke at her funeral, and then it came to my dad's. Oh, I had done. Oh, and sorry. So after my sister passed, six months after my sister passed, my aunt on my dad's side passed away. Then six months after her, my uncle in L.A., who I'm super close with and love and adore, he passed away from lung cancer, did his eulogy and spoke at his funeral. So, again, it was like um, back to back to back to back losses. A lot of grief. A, a lot, lot of, of trauma. Grief, a lot of grief. And, and like any time we felt like we got out of it, someone else had cancer and someone else died. And anyway, so once I dedicated to that process, I think had I not done the five weeks to just get myself ready for this phone call I don't know where I'd be today so I'm very grateful that I did the work internally to like work through my sisters in those five weeks to dedicate and have a different way that I can show up with the and I think after having experienced so much loss like my dad's was it's still heavy but I'm actually happy like I have a better happy in the sense like I have at peace with I'm in a good relationship with God like I have so much faith that they're watching over me and there's ways that they show up. I believe in their their spirit. I believe that God works in people and in signs in the world and I just see how they've shown up. Um, and then a few months after my dad passed away, our dog, Romeo, 14 and a half years, we had to put him down and he passed in my arms right after Thanksgiving. And here I am today. So... The trauma has happened, the lot, the death has happened, and so you, in some ways, what I'm hearing is 
you've built up a muscle and you know how to work out and exercise this muscle and it's learning how to deal with grief. So for the people who are listening, give us, you know, five things to do. I know you talked about community, but talk to us more about practical steps we could take to deal with our own pain or loss or suffering um, or trauma. One, you have to ask for help. Like reach, I don't care who. There's always help. There's a hotline. There's a free hotline. There's a website, especially now with technology. Use it. Get on a a, a positive support group. Like there's tons of Facebook groups. There's tons of, there's support everywhere. In your local community, there's organizations, there's churches. Even if you show up and you just, you know, are completely raw and like not, in a place where you're good and standing with God and you're mad, someone at that church will understand you. If not that church, go to the next church. But you have to connect with another human being who can just love you and hold you until you can hold yourself. So don't battle it alone is number one. Number one, don't be alone in your pain at all because you don't have to. There's readily available resources, people, people like yourself who are ready to process with people. Yes. Number two, get a routine. I don't care how hard it is. At least one part of your day has to feel like there is control and consistency that you can kind of create. So even if it's to wake up at a certain time and to be able to pray or to meditate or sit in silence or to breathe and do breath work watch a video to show you how listen to a guided meditation go for a walk move your body like what if you in a routine? just want to watch old football games or you want to um, just flip through mindlessly through the tv for an hour a day that's different that's one of the five but i'll get there that's basically if you No, but what if like that's part of your routine me- control mechanism of you know what i get to just lounge for the next hour that's my discipline that I'm going to do. Sure. If that's going to be the thing that helps you feel like there's some sense of control in your life because everything else is out of control, your brain needs to feel like there's something that you have control over in your life at and that point. And you're saying ideally it would be a healthy thing. Well, yes, of course. It'd be something healthy and healthy is, you know, can be subjective and um, what I consider healthy, somebody else might not. Um, but the point is, is to really create some sort of consistency in your day, wherever you can find it and being able to stick to that. Three is actually feel your pain, like actually allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to cry, allow, like we beat ourselves up so much and society has created that culture of like, don't be angry, don't be sad, get, change your feelings. Like I actually isolated myself for some of the time because I was tired of people making me want to be happy or to stop crying or to like, didn't know how to hold my suffering. I just wanted people to be silent, sit next to me, let me cry and that's it. Like, literally, I just needed that. And because people have a hard time, if you you can only go as deep with somebody if you've gone as deep with yourself. And so if you haven't gone to the deepest place with your own pain, you're going to have a hard time sitting with somebody else's, which is why I ultimately love to sit with people in their pain because it's like, I've been there. I can hold my pain. And I know how important it is for somebody else to sit there and to not be judged or to change. I think people get uncomfortable. So it's good intentions. 
but ultimately like allow yourself to feel your pain even if you have to do it alone sometimes like cry get angry it's just how you deal with it like don't go punch another human being in the face but punch a pillow punch something like go take a boxing class. like take your ang- it's okay to be angry you should be angry like I would get so upset when people would be like oh don't be sad like they're in a better place or don't be you know like Hedabad, like it's all good because I know they're coming from a good intention, but actually that was the thing that would make me more that mad. That was like devastating in the moment, Yeah, I'm like, Because right? it invalidates your feelings. 100%. Don't invalidate people's feelings. Actually just say, you know what? You're right. You have every right to feel angry. And I did have some people in my life who did that, and that felt so refreshing, and that felt so important to be seen that way. In terms of getting in touch with your feelings, what I'm hearing is it isn't only or isn't just cry or be by yourself and sink into those feelings. You you mentioned like going to the gym and kickboxing or. That's what worked for me. When I was at my lowest of low and I dedicated to at that, you have to be so sick of your own shit (laughs) that you you make yourself do something different at that point. Like I just, after three, four years of like doing the same thing of like not living, eating whatever I wanted, getting bigger, not moving my body, thinking negative. Like I followed things on social media that was all negative and like the world sucks. And But it was like funny memes like about the world sucking and people sucking like as humans. Like it was like the more I created this negative culture in my life the more I just stayed in that and after a while kind of just wallow yeah because I you know it was like I'm in pain I want to be around other people who are in pain and like get it and for a while that was okay but it got to a point where I was like okay like enough is enough it's like emo phase needs to run (laughs) like yeah like it's done like let's 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 do more with life you you I knew I had more in me than that And so that's where like moving my body, even though I didn't want to, there's a difference between what you want to do and what you need to do. That would be the other thing I would add to that five is do what you need to do, not what you want to do. Because what I want to do after a while, like you've, you've felt your pain, you've confided in somebody and you know, you have some consistency and control. Well, now go move and like do the things you need to do for yourself to get out of where you're at because you don't need to just stay in your suffering and pain at that point like find the pain find the purpose in your pain and that's what I ultimately did even though if you don't have a clear idea what it is go do things that begin to literally like um shift the energy out of your body Mm -hmm. like zebras I don't know if you know about zebras we need to be more like them (laughs) what zebras do in the wild when they are faced with trauma and they're about to get eaten by a lion and they don't, they literally go and shake. Like they go into a convulsive seizure and they shake the trauma out because they're about, they were just about to die, but they didn't. So they go shake out their trauma for a few seconds and then they go back to, you know, grazing, mating, sleeping. That's maybe that's why people love dancing so much. Because it's sh- you literally, but imagine they do that every single time. So that's mm-hmm. why they're okay. Human beings don't. We don't. We move on to the next right. thing, to the next thing. And so we put, hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. That's why people get, we have disease. We have. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think of shows like Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Where it's like traumatic moment after traumatic yeah. moment. Like, and it's a part of our culture just to, oh, okay, keep watching. Keep... Like, let's see what's going to happen here. 
that's not normal. It's desensitizing. hundred percent. And that's not okay for the body and the mind and the spirit. Obviously, you're going to be depressed. Obviously, you're going to be anxious. Like, obviously, like, you're going to want to turn to drugs well, and distract. Some people take distract. great pride in their ability to, to be even keel, you know, through those kinds of situations. Well, if you're even keel, that means you're constantly working on taking that energy out of your body mm-hmm. to, to be able to come back and to sit back into that day-to-day trauma. I mean, we're traumatized just by watching the news now. Like... We're, right. we, we have we have exposure to people dying, kids dying. And, and, Even and, if you scroll through your social media, you're seeing yeah, stuff you yeah. shouldn't see. So there's so much that we're already on the day, to the point where we just don't even notice it. So it's so important that you actually go and do the things you need to do to shake that out of your body. So go move your body, go for a walk, where, you know, if you're able to, like if you're not in your wheelchair bound, like there still is other ways that you can be able to incorporate that into your life to be able to move that pain and that energy out of your out of your spirit and out of your being so you you know you talked about community not doing it alone you talked about feeling your own pain going deep into your own pain you talked about then trying to add purpose to your pain and what else any consistency find one thing that you can Yes. Have control and consistency over in your life. One area, just one thing that's healthy. Yeah. You know, there's a couple things I really caught my eye over the last few minutes that I wanted to make sure I, I bring up. One, it, there's this weird thing in our culture where if you're negative or if you're down about something, and it's not just a Syrian culture, it's a culture at large, mm-hmm. people, people like stay away from it. They hardly ever is their compassion right uh, it's it's more of oh that person's mad or angry like they're just not seeing the positive part of life <laughs> so i'm gonna condemn them which is negative it's a judgment right it's a judgment so it's i, I think there's like a massive contradiction mm-hmm. right smack dab in the middle of like our daily interactions mm-hmm. where if we admit mm-hmm. how we're feeling pain about something mm-hmm. we're then met with this judgment mm-hmm. that is supposed to be a positive, but it's actually, you know, and I, I think that's what makes life difficult for so many people mm-hmm. is how do we express the pain that we're seeing mm-hmm. without being a burden on mm-hmm. others too. Mm-hmm. One, just to go to the judgment piece, just my parents are so cute. They would always tell me growing up, you know, when you judge, you point your index finger at somebody but if you actually pay attention, you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. Oh, okay. I like that. And yeah. so, you know, really, I think it's important to offer that compassion to yourself first before you can offer it to anybody how? else. To really acknowledge your own pain. Like, how are you actually affected by life? And do you write this down? Do you say it to a friend? What are the methods for acknowledging There's that pain? not one recipe. People are not cookie cutters. You have to do the work and try different things. It might mean journaling. It might mean praying. It might mean talking to somebody. It might mean seeing actually a therapist and getting professional help. It might mean going to the gym, listening to a podcast, committing to something that is going to be what you need, not what you want. And over time, you are going to get to a place where if you're doing the work and taking the steps to really work out what is holding you back, like ultimately people's two human 
fears that everybody has is that we're not enough and that we're that we're not lovable and that starts because we've created that for ourselves we think we are not enough that's why we're always trying to get more and more and more it's, it's, we can't ever be enough with just who we are right now it's like you can be a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time and if you can hold that in your mind then you're okay. like you're okay you're going to be okay. And then you can also offer that kind of compassion for the other person because you've been able to understand that you're a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time and and not hold that judgment over somebody else. Like there's always a reason why someone shows up hurt, angry, sad, upset. Like they're not just doing it to be a-holes. Like pe- this world is hurting so much. People are hurting so much. And the craziest part is we have the most, this is the, the, the time where we have the most ability to connect and to really use that power to really cultivate kindness, compassion, self-love, and even in our Syrian community to be able to do that. And I think there's, there are people doing that. So I, I think again, where you focus, your energy flows there. So if we continue to focus, we're not enough, our community's not doing enough, people are, this and that well then our energy is going to go there and we're going to stay in that place of of feeling like there's a lot of bad stuff happening in ourselves in our community but if we focus that there are Syrians out there who are shifting the conversation who are changing who are building bridges who are offering love who love themselves I love myself I will be the first to when you're like what do you love in this world I hope you name yourself number one because I do I didn't before but now I'm to a point where if I don't love myself world I can't love the world like I have to be enough and know I'm enough and know that I'm still working and I'll always be a work in progress but I'm gonna love the hell out of myself throughout the whole journey and everybody needs to get to that point where they can really say that for themselves so they can see somebody else in that same position yeah and what I love about your story just a segue is everything you've shared and your experiences your trauma your schooling, your education, all these anecdotes you have, zebras. Um, <laughs> you actually have now, you're in the process of converting this into launching yourself as a healer, as a coach, as a speaker, and as a therapist. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Yeah, I am really excited. I'm, I'm doing a lot right now. I'm uh, still at the agency working with foster youth. And uh, that nonprofit, I am shifting some of my time there, but I'm stepping now more into a therapist role. So I see clients for individual therapy and couples therapy who are dealing with depression and anxiety. And I'm also, I launched my own business and I told my dad two weeks before he passed away that I was creating Live to Align, which is what my business is. L-I-V-E, the number two. A-L-I-G-N. Align. Got it. And It'll be in our show notes. All right. Yeah. Follow me. And I told my dad and he's like, Brati, I know, you know, go for it. Do it. Kumut vadit spoila. Like he just put that already out there. And after his passing, I have completely committed to seeing this through. And I have two clients already that I'm able to really sit and I I do just really sit in a place where I'm able to connect with their pain 
and we really work through what they want to be able to really heal from that and hold a lot of um, excitement about that process. Like I'm excited people feel their pain. I'm excited when someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm going through stuff and I really want to face it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. hell yeah, let's get in the room. Let's do it because I did it. And it was the best medicine I ever gave myself, the best gift I ever gave myself. And I want everyone to be able to experience and not fear their pain, but to know that they're going to be okay. They just got to feel it. And, 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 and so Live to Align exists because that's what I want. That's the space I want to create. I want to create education around mental health and mental wellness and how to move through it by sharing my story, by sharing the things that worked for me, by connecting with people and really tapping into their energy and being able to really just see them for who they are and try different things and, um, also doing uh, mental health consulting with uh, companies to speak to their employees about wellness and uh, meditation and using just like different products like essential oils, breath work. Like our breath is the thing that calms down our central nervous system. It's the easiest thing to be able to use in a moment of overwhelm and stress. Yeah, so I think you're a gem for anyone out there who's you know got trauma or pain and the really cool thing about having you on the Assyrian podcast is you've lived with the stereotypes with the subculture within the Assyrian culture and you know how that doesn't often I mean there's some beautiful things within our culture that help us to process trauma but if there's an Assyrian out there who might be wrestling with something and feels like they have no one else to talk to or no one else who could truly understand their pain you've been through a lot and so you would be the right person truly from your background and the experience you've had to walk with someone through that yeah I mean I was honestly so on I didn't know where it was gonna go by me exposing myself I just knew I had to do it for myself and what came of it and I believe God works in mysterious ways I think there's something in in that relationship where you know moving through that with God's grace and um leadership but I've had Assyrians reach out privately who said thank you for sharing your story and I'm actually suffering and going through some stuff and I have talked to them and I have connected with some people and yeah reach out to me I I love our community I love our culture I love our people I I'm really heartbroken about how much pain so many of us are sitting in when I know that on the other side of it is freedom, is peace, is grace, is forgiveness, is love, is excitement and joy. And not to say that every day is roses and sunshines and rainbows, but you have this inner peace that you're going to be okay no matter what. And if I can offer that support, I mean, I do it to quote unquote nechray all the time, right? So wait, you but... just you just said that word, <laughs> and part of the thing we I would love to chat with you about, especially in our Assyrian culture, what it's been like for you to marry an Ethiopian. Oh yeah, because Abraham's <laughs> Ethiopian, right? Yeah, he is. So <laughs> that in our culture, marrying outside, how did your family respond? I, uh, I wish we could do a whole episode on yeah. that because you've told me this story; it's hilarious. But yeah. But I think it's valuable because that's painful too, isn't it? It it can be. Depend. It, it's it's not the load. It's how you carry the load. And yeah, there's definitely people, you know, marry inside your race, and we're diminishing and 
Ita Ita and, you know, keep the, the, the mother language. I mean, I get it. I, and how do you not feel, you know, I, how do you Because it's, that? it's, I mean, I'm very, like, I'm so okay with living a life that makes me happy. I'm, I really just have been okay with that for a, a long time, even before all my trauma. Like, I w- would always tell my parents, like, we're not living for other people. Like, live for yourself. You have this one life who cares like people are going to talk no matter what you have to do ultimately what feels right in your heart and he was right for me like he's he's he he actually had he lost his mom and his dad by 22 he had to raise his brothers at 22 and so god planted him in my life this is a guy who went through so much pain and grief already and was my rock through it all and to this day still is so i don't i'm so glad i chose who i chose and god brought him into my life but yeah was it hard I mean I uh uh not I mean maybe planning the wedding was like figuring out we want to incorporate both our cultures and whoever was at our wedding I would say they had a great time we incorporated kebabs and uh Ethiopian food we had an Assyrian entrance with Zurna Davula and we had an Ethiopian entrance, which was beautiful. And the uh, and the cool part was to be able to sit back as humans and being like, the Assyrians loved the Ethiopian entrance and the Ethiopians loved the Assyrian entrance. It was so cool and beautiful like, to see that come alive. And so when we can see the beauty in people, it, it no long, and I'm going to raise my kids to know Assyrian. Abraham speaks Assyrian. And the crazy part is in uh, Ethiopian, he speaks Tigrinya. There's a lot of Assyrian words that actually cross over. Cross over. Uh, we the, the he had been shopping with me, my aunt and my mom all day, and my aunt was like, "Miskina kuleyuma menanviele," out shopping, <laughs> and then he's like, "Did you guys just call me poor guy?" And we're like, oh, "How did you know?" <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, we say miskina too in our language." So it's really cool that there was a lot of crossover there. Um, but again, I I think for me, my family was, my parents have always, my sisters, my nephews, my extended family, my cousins, aunts, uncles, like they're so sweet. They're, they were very loving, very accepting. Like we did a little, um, family tour. Like we would go visit, I would take them to visit all our different family members and his family was so embracing. And when our families met, it was just beautiful. It was like, it was just about the love that we had, and that's what was important, and they got behind that. I'm sure there was other people who were not excited, and I don't care. <laughs> you can have your opinions, but remember, you judge. Three fingers are pointing back at you. I love it. It's been quite a journey for you, and I'm so glad to see that you're launching, and you're launching fierce, fiercely and passionately, and your website has all of the offerings you have. Now, if I live in... Uh, Canada or Chicago or New York or Australia, can I still reach out to you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can offer, especially with technology now, there's so many ways that we can connect. If you have internet and you have a computer, if you have a phone that has internet, we can Zoom, we can uh, FaceTime. I offer consulting. I offer therapeutic workshops. Eventually, I'm working towards creating online programs where you can even connect there and do a little bit more uh, understanding around mental health and mental wellness. I offer a free 30-minute consultation for anyone who's interested just to be able to... Are you going to hound us if we call you and just try to, like, bug us to sign up or something? No. I'm just... 
another person on the other line who cares about you and if it's a match I also don't I don't I'm not in the business to convince anyone to work with me I just I don't believe in that I think this is a personal decision and it's important to really connect with the person that is guiding your healing journey when you're in a really vulnerable place so being able to feel like I inspire you to want to work with me or connect with me and by offering that free consult we can chat if it works great if it doesn't I will offer whatever resources I have to be able to say we you know what's out because there's tons of free things that you can do and I I have so much of that I post on my Instagram on my Facebook I have a Facebook page I'm creating a YouTube channel where I'm going to I'm going to give our, the community free content about what I know so that will be there. Um, if you want to work deeper and more personalized, if you want a personalized experience, then yeah, then that's a different story and we can talk about that and what makes sense. That's awesome. And I'm hoping, you know, people who are listening to this, if they feel the need that they'll reach out to you. I know just, I always get a sense of healing in talking to you because there's a, you can, I can be transparent with you. I never feel judged. And... I know so many of us in the Assyrian culture and in general in life, we just love having that vault and that safe place. So hopefully you can provide that to people along with all your teaching tools and tips and strategies. As we close, there's one thing I always ask anyone who's on the Assyrian podcast, which is if you could say one thing to all the Assyrians listening to the Assyrian podcast, they're all listening from all over the world. What would you say to them? And I love you guys. Edit Oed Basimta Pushum Shana. Pushum Shana. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to us. Spread the word about the Assyrian Podcast. It has been so much fun to grow this podcast alongside you, our listeners, from all around the world. Thank you for making the Assyrian podcast what it is. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time.